All right, welcome back to the Real Quick with Mike Swick podcast. Today we have somebody who is for sure more crazy than me, and he's not even a fighter. He is one of the craziest guys in the world. He is a world record extreme adventurous named Ash Dykes, and he has three world records trekking across Mongolia, Madagascar, and the Yangtze River in China, which is 4,000 miles. It took him almost a year to track across it. Um, and the adventures and, and, and the, the experiences he's had is just so fascinating. I, I definitely wanted to have him on the show. It was great to hear from him and set this up. So I'm very, very excited about this show. Let's talk to Ash. All right, Ash, welcome to the show. You wild, wild man. You hey, dude, how are we doing? good. How are you? Very well. Very well. Yeah. Not quite as well as you being over in Thailand, enjoying the sun. Here in Wales, it's rainy, it's windy, it's cold, but uh, hey, it's all good. Makes for good training, hey. <laughs> you know what's cool? Because like I am in a great location for COVID because I'm on an island. I'm, I'm in the place where you ventured before for vacation. A lot of people like envy the fact I'm on an island. I have all these great things, but it's like I am stuck on an island. So it's like I miss being able to – like I miss planes. Like I've traveled so much around the world and like been to so many different places and hated flying, hated planes – but I actually miss them now. And I want to just go somewhere like home <laughs> like yeah. first to America and like and, and see everyone. Um, and then after that, maybe a few more places. But it's like, yeah, so it is cool. But I am stuck on an island, you know, so it is yeah. it is like, you know, it, it's fun. But yeah. after eight months, you don't <laughs> freedom, do you? you know, you want to. I, I love airports. I don't know how many times I've been in airports and I've never been bored. I'm always just raring to get back, get back in the air get back to different countries. I was actually in Thailand uh, just before we went into lockdown. So I left on Thursday when Thailand went into lockdown. I think they closed even down the beaches, I heard. Yeah, they did. Um, I arrived back okay. Yeah. But I was just doing wakeboard. Obviously, if we knew each other beforehand, I would have dropped by and said hi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You missed uh, Kandu do Muay Thai and stuff, and you missed going to the best gym in Thailand. Yeah. Exactly, man. Next time. <laughs> <laughs> Next time. So, so you're in Wales right now? Wales, yeah. Yeah, North Wales here. So, you know, we're breaking into the winter. and It's all right. It's fine, you know, but it is just really rainy lately. Dark, you know, short daylight hours, but you crack on. Yeah, obviously the, the weather is not so great there. But what about like this COVID thing? Like, is it is it sparked back up there? I heard that the, the UK is going into another lockdown and all that. How, how does that affect where you're at right now? Yeah, so Wales just come out of a two-week lockdown um, about a week ago now. They called it the fire break. And only about a week ago, as, as Wales came out of lockdown, England went into lockdown for a month. Wow. So they are, they've got another three weeks of the, the full lockdown. No travel, no flying, no you know, no coffee shops are open. Takeaway only, in fact. So it's um, it's crazy that it that it's still here. You know, it's it's very much much present. It's it's not left yet. Um, so we will see where we're at. Twenty twenty one. Hopefully things change and things go back to normal. You know, but yeah. it's been what eight months so far. It's been eight months. And how has that affected you? being an extreme traveler and, and adventurist and, and all that, like how, how is this kind of, I'm sure you had plans like we all did, you know, going into 2020 and, and, and throughout 2020 into 2021. What, how, how has this affected you? How has this kind of restrained you from doing what you wanted to do so far in this last eight months? 
Yeah, it was it, it was a little frustrating, you know. We had all of these big ideas. I was on a bit of a roll. Yeah. <laughs> um, momentum was building quite nicely. Um, but in all fairness, it, it's sort of gone. So I do a, a lot of like presentations. So a mm. lot of my time when I was when I just finished Mission Yangtze, which was the Yangtze River journey out in China, um, it's normally like presentations and you know working with different brand deals and sponsors and you know, um, getting the presence out there, maybe working on, on a second book. Um, and so I kind of finished the Yangtze journey at the right time, mm-hmm. you know, I, and once I had actually finished the Yangtze journey, I was straight out there doing an Asia tour, you know, visiting Singapore, Korea, Myanmar, China. Um, and so what I found is because I was constantly traveling after such a big expedition being year long to complete, I was still super skinny, you know, I was still slightly weak. Uh, I wasn't able to stay grounded long enough. So I see this sort of COVID as a time to, you know, get grounded, restock, uh, recharge, train, put some weight back on me. Um, but, you know, eight months is a heck of a long time. I'm, I'm ready now to yeah, you know, eat all I can. I've built my body back up. It's time to um, to move on now. But everything's just gone online, you know, as I'm sure you've noticed yourself. It's all pretty much yeah. just adapted, you know, in this day and age of all this technology. Can you imagine if it was 100 years ago? Well, not even that. Yeah. But um, it'd be completely different, wouldn't it? It's cool that you're seeing all this stuff because I feel like the world is going to a place where it's all going to be less traveling, more staying inside, more computers, more, you know, video and less actually touching and feeling the world and so it's like it's it's good that you're and i think there's gonna be more you know things get closed down in the future i think there's gonna be not like like a world war or anything but i definitely think there's it's not gonna be as open as it is now i think right now we have the most freedom we're probably ever gonna have to travel countries and do cool things i think eventually countries are gonna start shutting down more and more and in at least certain areas or they're gonna be overpopulated with tourists you know here in thailand that's been a big issue you go to some of the nicer spots in thailand and it's just not yeah. even worth going because it's just nothing but tourists. The whole place, you can't even get a good picture because it's just tourists everywhere. So I think between those two things, that's what's cool about what you're doing is like you're getting to see the world before, you know, whatever happens, happens. And I think that's amazing. And for those who don't know, it's, it's tuning in. Um, I mean, you got three world records right now, right? So you got Madagascar, Mongolia, and then the Yangtze traveling yes. across. So how did, how did all this start? Like, I mean, obviously I know you... I know a lot about you from watching a lot of stuff recently um, and watching the Joe Rogan podcast before. Um, but how did all this start? Like, I I know things start on a whim, but like you do crazy shit. Like, you, like this, like going 4,000 miles across the Yangtze River and, and Mongolia and Madagascar, which is its own world in itself. Yeah. That's dangerous, man. Like, where do you like, where do you get the, like, where did the start as a kid where you're like, okay, I want to travel and do cool things like David Attenborough, who does a little different than you do, um, and then just full on like, okay, I'm going to do it by myself, or carrying a trailer, and like <laughs> and like risk my life the whole time. Like, wh- how does all this start? It's crazy, man. Yeah, it's been a wild decade for sure. Yeah, uh, I guess it just started, you know, when I was probably in high school, going on to college, sort of realizing I'm, I'm a kinesthetic learner. You know, I'm sure you'll agree that there's so many different styles of learning, and for me. I just couldn't sit in the classroom and be taught by the teacher at his or her experiences because it just went over my head or one in one ear out the other. So I was a bit like, you know, I I need to 
experience it for myself, you know, trial and error, making mistakes and adapting and learning from those mistakes, you know, seeing what the world's about, seeing what I'm about and, you know, testing myself in certain scenarios, learning from different people uh, and close encounters along the way. Um, obviously just an idea sort of daydreaming really in my in my college course because my background I don't come from a wealthy background there's no finance there Um, I didn't go to university so there's no sort of university degree Uh, I have no military background so there was never any sort of pre-survival knowledge it was just this 16 17 year old kid living near the coast in a little town a little village pretty much called Old Colwyn with this big idea to go out see the world um, mixed with different traditions, visit different cultures. And so I was working as many hours as I could work. And I was working in a fish and chip shop. I was working, <laughs> I was working as a lifeguard. I was working as a waiter, about 240 hours a month. I was cycling every day to and from work. Um, and yeah, instead of sort of, as you said, sort of watching these documentaries by David Attenborough or whoever, I wanted to to be out there amongst it, you know? Um, And one thing led to the next. I would say the catalyst, though, is probably when me and my friend, so I traveled first with a friend, uh, we set off, we were in China, and we found ourselves very much on the beaten track. You know, we didn't have any of our own sort of unique stories, photos, or experiences. Um, And it was when we went to Southeast Asia, we were in Cambodia, we were pretty much sulking on the Mekong Riverbank in Cambodia saying that, you know, we've not done anything special, you know, we're on the same sort of beaten track and we had such a shoestring budget. We were kind of like, let's let's just do something different. Let's, you know, I said, let's purchase the most ridiculous bikes we can find um, and cycle the length of Cambodia and Vietnam. And that, I believe, was the catalyst. You know, I turned around, there was this old lady cycling this ridiculous looking thing, rusting away, uh, but it looked like a bike that we could afford. Um, so yeah, 10 pounds or $10, we purchased the bike, no gears, no pump, no suspension, uh, no map, no puncture repair kit, just yeah. nothing, you know, and, and off we went. And there was a lot of, you know, reckless times during that cycle. I was 19 at the time, but at the end of that, I was like, whoa, you know, I found my niche. I found my passion for yeah. adventure in it and I didn't want to stop. And here we are still going. <laughs> so was Madagascar, I mean, Mongolia was your first, right? So what brought you to there? Say again. So what 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 finally got you to, to to come up with this idea to walk across Mongolia and then actually get there to do that? Got you. Yeah. So pretty much after that Vietnam cycle, there was lots of creating quite reckless adventures. Small time, no records here. Right. It was only stuff like sort of hacking through the jungle from Thailand into Myanmar in 2010 yeah. via the jungle, learning how to survive in the jungle with the Burmese hill tribe. You know, such a humbling experience to learn. Only a fraction of these guys' knowledge. They're so knowledgeable when it comes to what's edible, what's not. Berries that act as mosquito repellent, you know, once you rub it into your skin. How to shelter and raft our natural resources. We were trekking the Himalayas with no permits because we didn't have the the, uh, the money. And we were just like, let's do it. And we were warned that if the Pakistan army come across us, we must get down on our knees, put our, our thumbs behind our ears and say, Allah Harigbi. Uh, repeatedly, which means I'll have mercy on me, you know. So all of these quite reckless and dangerous adventures were building up and leading up. Um, I then settled down in Thailand, beautiful, beautiful place, as a um, doing some Muay Thai fighting and as a master scuba diver instructor. I was there for about two years, and whilst I I loved this lifestyle, 
it was my previous adventures, the ones I just told you about, that, you know, were just, I, I couldn't stop thinking about them almost, you know, and mm. I wanted to do something much bigger and better than I had ever done before. Uh, I wanted it to be in an extreme country that I was very unfamiliar with um, mm. and where I can kind of rely solely on myself to survive in that country. And for me, Mongolia popped up. I was, I was 23 at this point. And Mongolia popped up as that unfamiliar country. You know, you hear yeah. it all the time, but you don't come across many people who have come from Mongolia or plan on going. And yet it's the heart of Asia, home to the Gobi Desert, the Altai Mountains. You've got the eagle hunters sort of in the West who will be in, on their horse fight. You know, the eagles perched on their arms, hunting foxes, wolves and whatnot. You've got the, the Gobi Desert down south with the camels, the reindeer tribe up north and the Mongolian steppe yeah. across the east, you know. And for me... Um, walking across the country would have been mega and then I thought why not do it solo and unsupported where I'd be relying solely on my on myself um, to survive pulling a trailer weighing 18 stone or yeah. 100 kilograms pretty much carrying all of my provisions needed to survive it was a 1,500 mile journey um, and it took 78 days to complete and when I say solo and unsupported uh, I literally mean like there was there was no van sort of following a few miles in front or a few miles behind. Um, there was a previous guy who had attempted it. Uh, he was actually a Navy soldier, a desert explorer. He was evacuated on three different occasions. This almost put me off because I had my doubts and I had my worries. Yeah, you know, I wasn't you no know, survivor. You know, I was just a scuba diver living in Thailand. So I thought, what chance do I have? But you know, just because no one's found a way to do something doesn't mean it can't be done, right? And I thought with the right training and the right logistics, maybe I could uh, complete this journey. And that's sort of how the idea started. How do they keep track of you? So you you said unsupported. So you have this trailer. I saw this trailer that you have. Um, and you have to put everything on this trailer to go across Mongolia um, that you need. So you got water, you got food. Obviously, you plan to meet people along the way to help you because you need support, water, food all the way across. How do they keep track of you? So, so like, if, if no one's with you, how can you, for, for the record's sake, like, how do they, do they monitor you somehow, like, with some kind of, like, monitor to make sure that you actually did it and didn't just jump, get on, like, an ATV yeah. and, like, cruise, jump on cruise a few miles? Yeah. yeah, so I had uh, an in-reach Delorme, so it's kind of like a, a, a bog-standard text-only satellite phone for okay. 2013. Um, and this Delorme pretty much sends off your GPS coordinates, your altitude, your speed, your um, longitude and latitude every five minutes, 24-7 for the whole duration sort of of the expedition. Um, and that's why, especially with the Yangtze, uh, being a 4,000-mile journey, being, yeah. that was 352 days. It's crazy. It was tracking me the whole time. So the Guinness Book of Record, they I think it took them about, about a month or over a month to actually verify because they had to go to every point yeah. and make sure that the speed was accurate. Because if I jumped on the on the back end of a, a car, lorry, bike or whatnot, yeah, they, yeah. they could pick up that speed and that's it, you're instantly disqualified. So they had to go through five minutes at a time, you know, and wow. find if there was uh, any hiccups there. Um, but yeah, pretty much just that that satellite that just sends it straight up and uh, has, got me, has got me covered. That's crazy, man. That's so crazy. And so, so you had the food. What, what is it that you pack for that? So, so did you do research on the kind of like people that you'd run into and the type of food that they would have? And then did you mark off like watering places? I saw that you had like a, like a, a cup that you could drink from the, from the water. 
source without mm-hmm. having to take bottles and stuff. Did you? Yeah, did, that, it was a lot of research, right? You did a lot of work on 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 mapping out where you can get water and meet people and get yeah. food. And there had to have been fear too of like people welcoming you and giving you food and and water, being that they would have no idea you're coming. I would think. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was there was a lot of fear and a lot of doubt with this expedition uh, because I hadn't I hadn't tested myself to this extent before. Yeah. You know, all of my previous adventures were relatively safe in terms of you know cycling you're on a road which means there's going to be people which means there's going to be food going to be water but with mongolia i had to strip it back to basics i took just a map and a compass because the actual gps uh, failed me along the way in terms of like villages were located differently so i had to map everything on a map and on this map were confirmed and unconfirmed water uh, sources and that was mainly consisted of wells or communities and some wells were locked up or dry or stagnant. And so I always had to make sure I had enough water to get me through two wells. If two wells were dry, then I'd be pretty much screwed. And my only backup would have been a text only via the satellite phone that I had. And I'd need to allow at least three to four days for my agent in the capital city who lives out there to get to me if he finds me in time. Whereas if I stand on the back end of a snake, three or four days is just too long, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm gone. Um, so there were all of these sort of worries and concerns. There were wolves, there were snow blizzards, there were sandstorms. The trailer was so heavy because I couldn't afford um, a proper structure in terms of I couldn't afford a factory to put together a carbon fiber trailer, for example. So it was actually built in my family uh, family friend's back garden using mild steel, meaning oh, wow. on an empty load, it was 40 kilograms already, you know, with Jeez. nothing in it. Uh, I took six weeks worth of food of ration packs, and I was really rationing them. Uh, I took like a big 20-liter water container. Uh, I took, uh, as you mentioned, like a little water filtration bottle that I can scoop it up, screw on the lid, and it's got a built-in filter, which gets rid of like 99.9% of contaminants and bacteria. So I didn't need to boil the water, and, and I didn't need to use the chlorine tablets. I had to take equipment to survive the cold temperatures of the Altai Mountains, so I was at over 3,000 meters. It was about minus 15 degrees Celsius. And I'd wow. be in the Altai Mountains for about three weeks. But then I'd break out of the Altai and enter the Gobi Desert for five weeks. And so I'd need to prepare then for the climate of the desert, which was completely different clothing again. And I'd have no drop-off points, no depots, if you like. I would have to carry all of the winter clothing with me through the desert as well, even though I didn't need it. Um, and yeah, I was sort of relying on the locals. You know, my, my faith and trust in humanity is like at the very top because I always say the locals can either make, and you've experienced it yourself, you well-traveled yourself, but the locals can either make or break an experience, can't right. they, you know? Um, and what I found is the locals have made the journey so much better. That's that's what I, I really do it for, first and foremost. The survival and the challenge is, um, is a bonus, but for me, it's meeting new people, it's discovering new cultures and, you know, just really getting familiar with their way of life. Um, and luckily, you know, they were they were great. There, there, there was an instance where I had my solar panel stolen, um, but that's fairly minor. Um, other than that, they were they were just really warm and welcoming. I remember this one guy chasing me down on horseback. I saw him coming in from the distance, just running down about a few miles. And I was like, geez, you know, what, what's this about? Just this dust cloud behind the horse, you know, and he's galloping towards me. And it's all just to give me a, a takeaway chai, you know, like their, their tea. 
um, and wishing yeah, yeah. well on my journey. So I was like, wow, amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, there were a lot of uh, a lot of dangers, a lot of you know worries, but yeah, I took it day by day, broke the goals down into lots of little sections, aiming to get to lots of little checkpoints, and then try not to visualize the seventy-eight days, but just try to visualize the end of the day instead. You know? Yeah, it's cool, man. Yeah, I really, really look forward to this podcast because. You know, I grew up in Texas, so it was like small town Texas and like, you know, I had woods and, and stuff like that. So I grew up like exploring the woods and the rivers and the, you know, nice. the creeks and all that stuff around my house and like watching <laughs> National Geographic. So I always had big dreams and still obviously it's a big part of my life traveling and I've been so many countries and 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 I explored even Cambodia and 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 oh. my favorite honestly is Indonesia like I've I've gotten lost in Indonesia for like months like I've spent three months at a time sometimes in Indonesia like oh. through Bali and 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 down to Nusa Penida and 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 all the different I've been all over Indonesia but nothing like See. what you do obviously like I don't, I'm not that type of explorer like I still want the air condition at the end of the day like and I'm not I'm not trying to like break records and and do crazy stuff but I found the same thing like with people I ran into so many different types of people in so many different types of places and it's so weird because it seems like a scary thing I've had people the worst thing I've ever had is had people that I've ran into that's like played around with me in like a semi-serious kind of joking way like poking you know what i'm saying like amongst their friends making fun kind of like of, of, of you but then it comes yeah. around yeah. good that's the worst it's been which it could have been a lot worse but it seems like so many people are really nice people like that, that you meet around the world and i'd assume that's the same for what you've done yeah it really is man yeah yeah what's uh what I, i've got to ask you what are the top three destinations you'd recommend in indonesia whilst we're on that topic Oh my God. Okay. So Nusa Penida was great. Uh, and that, that, that there's a clean, clean beach there. That's nice. It's, it's a very famous beach to go down to. There's a lot of cool things there. It's a big, well, it's not a big, but it's a real like hard to trek Island. You, you get motorbikes, but even on motorbikes, it's really hard to track. But Bali yep. itself is just an enormous Island. You've been to Bali before or? I, I've been for work only, so I didn't really get to explore. I was there for like three, four days. I need to return though. I could say Bali just because it's so big. It's so massive. Yeah. And there's so many waterfalls, cliffs, uh, beautiful sea points. I went to like the Blue Lagoon and like, uh, I don't know exactly where that was at. That was in one of the other places. But um, they have yeah. Lombok. They have, I mean, there's just, there's a lot of places there. But I would say Bali, you could spend months in bali i mean there's there's caves with waterfalls and like just it's just an uh, unbelievable ubud with like the all the greenery with the rice fields and and, i I briefly went there oh Oh, so beautiful it looks stunning yeah big time yeah uh, there's a lot of people that base themselves there isn't there like i know a lot a lot of um people via instagram absolutely based there during this whole pandemic yep uh great livable places well i imagine yeah it's because it's like thailand in the way um it's like Thailand, yeah. but different. Thailand, it's hard to explain the difference, but it's, it's like another type of, of Phuket. It's like Phuket is like uh, very similar, but different. It's hard to explain. But but uh, oh, yeah. Bali is a big hub for like influencers and travel uh, vloggers right. and stuff like that. They, they base there and it's cheap. It's very reasonable. And you can live in like these pool villas and, and by yeah, Chenggu is the main area there where you can live by the water and it's a real cool hub. And then you got Ubud, who's kind of like the, the vegan, super healthy, you know, area where it's like everything's super healthy and super conscious of like the, you know, plastics and, and, and all this stuff. yoga and stuff over there oh, as well. Crazy yoga. Yeah. All this stuff. So it's kind yeah. of a, just a, 
it's a different world, man. It's a different world. But but yeah. yeah but getting back to you real fast, I want I want to talk about. I know all your stuff is really well documented, and and you can look up all your stuff online, all your different places. But I'd love to talk about some of the highlights and lowlights that stick out for yeah. you in these different places. So we started talking about Mongolia first. What are some of the yeah. things that that like? What what are some uh, something that really stands out that was like maybe a, a good highlight that that maybe you haven't discussed so much before. Um, obviously, we know what you did, but as far as yeah. meeting the people or maybe lucky breaks that you caught at the right time or yeah. or, or something, what what are some of the, the highlights of that trip that, that really made that trip special to you? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, and I would say, actually, the, the darkest part of that period um, entwines with the with the highlight, um, which was the fact that I, I actually almost died in the Gobi Desert. Uh, due to my water running, you know, so minimal. Oh, wow. Um, I had weeks in the Gobi Desert. I was suffering with dehydration, with heat exhaustion. I was on my way to heat stroke, which is usually fatal. Uh, I was delirious. I was hallucinating. Um, I could almost feel like my, my organs drying up. I was, in a, I was in a mess. I was in a bad way. And I was in complete agony as well. Uh, it was 40 plus degrees Celsius. Uh, the, wow. the thin tires on my trailer uh, we're now sinking into the soft sand. So we made the trailer feel like 500 oh, kilograms, you know, each step was just agony. Um, there was no breeze, there was no shelter. So I had to hide underneath my trailer and I found myself hiding in the shade for a good hour at a time. Um, and it was at this point I realized that, you know, if I don't keep getting up and pushing on, I'm going to die out here in the Gobi Desert. Uh, I had wow. missed the point of pickup. Um, as I said, it would take three to four days to get to me and then probably another two days to get me out. So let's say we're talking six days, whereas if I walk, um, I could get there within four days. And I just I just believed I couldn't survive more than four days. It was kind of like I only have four days. Um, and so to get up and walk was my only option. And I've always been kind of like a big believer in sort of visualization techniques and the law of attraction. You know, I love that stuff. Um, but at this point, I was in too much pain to visualize four days. Four days felt like a whole month, you know. Yeah. It was awful. So what I did is I actually broke my goals down and decided to to visualize 100 meters. You know, I could see 100 meters. I thought there's no reason why I can't get out from under the trailer, strap the four-point harness on me, and walk for 100 meters. That's all I could, I could manage before resting for no more than five minutes under my trailer. And by doing that, 100-meter walking and five minutes under my trailer – I made it to a community that I was praying, you know, that the map said that there was a, you know, fully fledged community there, which means yeah. there's water, there's people, there's shelter. Um, and I could see it in the distance and it definitely wasn't a mirage, you know, I could see it and I was like, right, here we go. And it was a heck of a push, but almost like as soon as I entered the village, I was kind of collapsing. And that's where the locals came over, you know, they pointed me where I could, where I could rest for the night. Um, they welcomed me in, they, they almost just, there was no communication at all in terms of we, we just can't converse different languages fully. But sometimes you don't need to be able to communicate. You know, when a guy walks in and he's blistered red, yeah. you know, super skinny, pulling this sort of concrete block behind him, they just sort of knew my, my needs and wants uh, and were absolutely amazing. It took me eight days to recover, actually, before wow. I could push on. Um, so that's one of the darkest times of where I almost lost my life. But the immense hospitality from the locals who who potentially saved my life um, and with the community being there, 
definitely saved my life because if it was a glitch and that community wasn't there, I would have died quite easily. Um, and so that's where, I, yeah, yeah. So that's quite that's a good question, um, and and that's why I believe that the the low light definitely goes with the highlight. Absolutely. Um, on that one but there were oh, there were lots you know there were lots the beautiful sunsets just being at the fire at night i remember i was i walked over eight days without seeing a single person and at that point i could have panicked or like stressed out but i thought you know try to enjoy this as much as possible because it's very rare you can go to a country now yeah. travel such a big distance <laughs> yeah. for eight days and not see a single human you know yeah. i was like wow i just need to remember this because it might never happen again um and I, I, I remember another highlight being when I was in such a quiet place in the Gobi Desert. My logistics manager had mentioned this to me beforehand, uh, but I never knew quite what he meant. But he pretty much said, there's no such thing as silence. Because I said, can you imagine how quiet it's going to be in the desert? He said, there's no such thing as silence. I was like, what do you mean? You know, elaborate. And he was like, you'll see what I mean if you hit that point. I was like, right, okay. And there was one section where there were no people, there were no insects, there was no wind, there was just nothing. There were no sand dunes, it was just flat, you know. Um, and I could hear like the faintest humming noise, like this, this, this humming sound. And I thought it was like maybe the air from my container. So I, I walked away from my trailer by about 100 meters. I sat down, I was holding my breath. It got, got me for about 10 minutes. I was there like, what, what is this noise? And I realized that I'm at such a point of silence that I can hear my own body functioning. You know, my own body's ticking up over, and that's what he meant, that there's no such thing as silence, because yeah. when you're at the point of silence, you hear your body. You hear everything. Yeah, which yeah. was crazy, you know. Um, and so, yeah, a, a lot of different sort of varied highlights along the way, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I know you probably had some, like, lowlights uh, with, with animals stalking you, and I, I, I read about all that. Did you have any highlights from, from the animals? I mean, did you ever see any uh, cool animals or make any friends or, or have any cool experiences? I'm sure you've seen so much wildlife on these treks. It, well, we're yeah. still talking about Mongolia, obviously. Yeah, so with Mongolia, um, I did, you know, I saw gazelle jumping in the distance um, through the long sort of green grass, you know, just absolute wilderness. I saw eagles hunting. Um, I didn't quite see the wolves um, in Mongolia. I did in China, but in Mongolia, I didn't. I just saw the footprints and didn't even hear the howling because it was just so windy, especially in the Altai Mountains. Um, but yeah, I've seen some immense wildlife. Um, especially in Madagascar as well, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah. In Madagascar, 80% of all plant life and wildlife is found nowhere else in the world, you know. So yeah. that was just insane. I was walking past things daily thinking, you, you belong over here. Yeah. You're endemic <laughs> to this island. <laughs> yeah. And then so so we'll finish up with Mongolia. With, with When you finally got to the end, and what was that? So that was your first like feat, like your first like accomplishment record. What was that feeling like? Like that that victory kind of feeling once you got to the finish line and you knew that you did it and you and you made it. What, what was going through your head? Ah, uh, yeah, it was it was special. I would say the last sort of three four day build up to the end. As I'm walking, I remember thinking, "Wow, you know, this is creating history right now, and I need to be present in the moment and remember every minute of these next few days." Um, and I was just, I think it was with all of the stress and the doubts that I said I previously had, like this was an expedition that cost me no more than a few thousand pounds to do a world first world firsts normally cost hundreds of thousands of right. pounds, you know, yeah, yeah. and this was just sort of back pocket money. Um, 
even to train for that journey. I flew, I lived, I moved back into my parents in the UK. I couldn't even afford gym membership. Um, you know, I had a tractor tire, I had a sledgehammer. I was building myself up ready for the demands of pulling the trailer, sort of building yeah. all components and fitness and the durability of the body. Um, and so whilst there was lots, and, and of course the mindset as well, I'd probably say it's 70% mindset and 30% physical. Um, and so with all of that stress and drama and negativity and a lot of naysayers as well, a lot of people said that this expedition was impossible. For those last four days, I let all of this play in my head, you know, and I just yeah. had this big smile whilst I had this massive overgrown beard, I had this big sort of smile on my face like, yes, we're doing it, we're getting there. And so it was amazing. And I'll always remember that because that was the sort of first big um expedition that I had I had done especially alone and what do you do after that so after it's over with you you leave Mongolia and like what is your celebration like vacation kind of thing what is the first thing you do or want to do um what is the first thing eat eat yeah yeah <laughs> ice cream so or what <laughs> I went through such such a period in Mongolia where I would just dream all day and all night of food because sometimes I'd only have one ration a day. Yeah. So I'd be walking 14 to 16 hours and I would only have, um, what were the ration packs? I think 800 kilocalories. Wow. So I lost about 13, 14 kilograms by the end. Um, I wasn't obviously just one ration pack every day for the whole duration, but there was like a week or two weeks at a time where I would just have to absolutely rush it. And so food was on my mind. Um, but I was, I was 23. Yeah, I was only 23. So whilst I was walking Mongolia, I was already planning in my mind the next journey. Right. And so whilst I came back to Mongolia and so whilst I had like different media obligations, um, in terms of organic, there wasn't, I couldn't even afford no PR either, you know, it was just all sort of via social media and then the news got um, wind of it, the BBC reached out and, you know, I started to, to put plans in place for uh, another expedition. I didn't want to be seen as that sort of one hit wonder um, comes, does something cool and disappears. I knew that it's the long haul that I'm, uh, and I still see myself as still getting started, you know, I still feel this is just the beginning. Um, and so I was kind of focusing on the next big thing whilst doing lots of talks and events and sort of building myself back up, getting the weight back on, hydrating myself and and getting ready and staying focused on the next big thing, as I'd say, is what I fixated on when I when I returned home after eating a lot of peanut butter and a lot of chicken. <laughs> peanut butter and chicken are like my favorites and cheese on toast. You know? Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, just all high protein foods. I was just like, right, let's do it. What's what's in a ration? Like when you say ration, what's in a ration and what does it taste like? These were good ration packs. Uh, I had chicken tikka masala. Um, I had spaghetti bolognese, chicken korma. Um, I'm sure there was like fish pie or cottage pie. Uh, and so they were, they were nice ration packs. You just pour the hot water in, seal it up, leave it closed for 10, 15 minutes. Um, and you've got yourself a pretty, a pretty good meal, only 800 calories, but, um, yeah, tasty. Yeah. It's like, it's basically an MRE, like a military kind of food pack. Yeah. 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 That's pretty much it. Yeah. So they're, they're lightweight I think They were called expedition foods. So, you know, they're probably about this, this sort of size, mm. um, but really flat packed and you just open it out, pour the water and you, you're good to go. Um, so I look forward to that. I was gutted when I ran out of my chicken tikka masala, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you, I bet you like try to ration out the the portions of the best the best meals too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
so Madagascar followed that up. And that, to me, is one of the most fascinating places. I mean, like you said, 80% of the entire population of animals and eagle, everything in there is like its own it can only be found yeah. there anywhere in the world and like that's that's it's like it's its own world basically so how was that how was how was going through there and and making that track and all the different things you ran into i would assume there would be a lot of wildlife and insects and 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 different types of terrain too right there's like jungle dry jungle uh wet jungle yeah. desert all kinds of stuff right that's right yeah if it, if it's not on your on your list as of yet mike get it on your yeah. list you would absolutely love it uh, and it's a big island as well obviously it's dwarfed by africa so when you think of madagascar it looks small you know, but... think of this tiny little place but in terms of land mass it's two and a half times the size of the uk oh wow um and there's 24 million people living there and it's yeah it's so diverse as you mentioned you've got your tropical dry forest your, your rainforest your sort of tsingi your desert yeah your rocky mountains um, and so the journey that I took was from the most southern point of Madagascar um, all the way to the most northern point. But it, Madagascar has this kind of mountain range that sits central east of the island and goes almost the entire length of the island. And so it was my mission to try to walk from the most southern point to the north via the mountainous ridge while summiting the eight highest mountains along the way. Wow. And the mountains aren't big there, you know, what, just under 3,000 meters um, but often, you know, they're covered in jungle. Yeah. So it's kind of like mixing the two terrains. So it's not technical climbing with your ropes, but it's like jungle on its own is really tough. Mountains on its own is really tough. You merge them and you find yourself sort of hiking upwards and climbing these mountains, but with a machete in hand whilst you're sort of hacking through the bush, you know? Um, and it was just, it was wild to put it into perspective. It was only a hundred miles longer than the Mongolia journey. Um, so Madagascar was 1,600 miles with the route that I took, mm -hmm. but it took double the duration. You know, instead of wow. eight days, it took 155 days. Uh. I always say with Madagascar, I, I really don't believe there was just one <laughs> pleasant day's trek. You know, there wasn't a day that went by where it was just a nice hike where I could settle down for the night and think, yeah, that was cool. I look yeah. forward to tomorrow. It was challenge. After challenge, you know, I was held up at gunpoint by the military. Um, I had to cross crocodile-infested rivers. I almost lost my life to malaria. Um, I managed to reach a doctor a few hours before slipping into a coma. I had uh, leeches that I'd have to pull off, you know, every every night, probably about six, seven, especially in the jungle up north, and wow. flick them out my tent. I had spider bites that, you know, became infected. I had to rely on little aloe vera plants that I could break off the, the, the end and sort of rub the aloe vera into it. Um, I almost lost my photographer to a nighttime cyclone croc infested river crossing, <laughs> which was intense. Jeez. It was, we were hunting, we were gathering, you know, as in the jungles again, we'd walk maybe 12 hours and we would only cover a few miles, you know, five kilometers at max. Um, and of course there was the story of the chicken uh, that I had to carry, you know, if you, so the highest peak called Maramakocho in Madagascar is tradition. The locals say that in order to get to the summit, you have to carry yourself a white male chicken or cockerel. Yeah. Um, and say that wards off the bad spirits and witches of okay. the rainforest. So I'm all about respecting my local customs and, and traditions. So I got myself a little white chicken called Gertrude. 
Um, I had to keep him alive. I had to feed him. I had to give him water. <laughs> he became fully domesticated, you know, yeah. pretty much like a dog. I, I wouldn't need to tie him up. He would follow everywhere I went. He would sleep on top of my tent. Um, and yeah, sort of hacking through the jungle, being bit by spiders and leeches, whilst I've got a chicken sort of making their squawking noises right into my ear. Uh, and then once we reached the top, we, we set him free uh, on the peak of Marmacocho. You set your favorite ration free? <laughs> exactly, yeah. I had <laughs> your favorite food. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. And it could have been, and I thought, you know, I can, because there was that bond, it was two and a half weeks. I was like, it's, it's a chicken, this is crazy. Yeah. I was like, but we've got to bring him back yeah, down yeah. on the mountain. But I had a Malagasy guide. And he said that if I was to bring him down off the mountains, I'd be introducing the bad witches yeah, into the next community, which is taboo. And they'd be all pretty, pretty pissed at me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so of I thought, course. okay, we'll leave him up here. What are some of the, like when you said you had to hunt and uh, kind of scavenge your way through there, like what are some of the things that you actually had to hunt and, and you were able to actually kill and eat through, through the Madagascar trip? So the most common were kind of like little rodents that would burrow under underneath the trees, kind of like little ten wrecks. Um, I remember the first time I saw my guide, he was a, a proper bushman, really. Um, I was learning a lot of survival from him, and he just he just saw this hole, in, you know, under the tree, yeah. and he instantly stuck his hand without even looking, without even knowing what's in there, you know. And there's snakes in Madagascar, uh, and he just stuck his hand and he pulls out this little, this kind of like. Um, kind of like a squirrel in yeah. a way um and he you know he just breaks its neck puts it in the rucksack and he's like we've got some protein for later um but a lot of it was gathering so we would rely on mangoes coconut um, oh, nice. cane, you know a lot of different fruits and veg we'd come across sort of wild chili as well that we could include wow. into our meals at night i love chili i guess you love your spicy food being out there in Thailand. I really don't, but everybody else does. Yeah, I, I can't yeah. have spicy food for my stomach. It's too sensitive, but yeah, it's very yeah. popular here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I miss the Thai food, man. Um, and so that's kind of what we were what we were gathering along the way, really. So obviously that's where you got malaria. That's where you had uh, not one, you know, pleasant day where it was just like, a, you know, an, an easy day for you. What is it that kept you going like especially when you had the malaria you had to go take care of that what made you come back and finish that track yeah that was hard especially with the malaria um you know i remember my, my family being on the phone saying you know what you're doing you're not suffering from the flu or a cold you know this is the biggest killer in human history as far as diseases go you need to get yeah. yourself home recover here and try again a different year yeah uh, but i kind of knew i was in safe hands you know unfortunately the doctors out there deal with malaria every day and so they'd be better suited to deal with malaria out in Madagascar than if I was to bring it back to the UK. Um, and as long as I could, because I think within a week, again, I lost about 13 kilograms because of the anti-malarial medication. Um, but I knew if I could build up my body again, build up my mindset, my mindset went all dark and negative as well. I thought once you get malaria, you've got it for life. And I tried to look at it in a positive way in Sort of unfortunately, I got malaria, but fortunately, it was the deadliest strain. You've got four different strains. Three lower lower strains of malaria can remain dormant in your system. Right. Um, but the deadliest strain, it usually kills you within 24 hours, but if you catch it in time, it's eradicated out of your system fully. Oh, wow. Um, and so it was, I, I was able to last five days. I was actually walking with malaria. Um, and that was because I was taking my anti-malarial pills but because I'd eaten a rotten eel, 
in a community that was suffering with the bubonic plague. Oh. They said, stay in your tent, we'll cook your food uh, and we'll bring, you know, we'll bring it to you. And they brought it to me and it was eel and it smelled a little bit off, um, a little bit dodgy, you know, but me and my guide were hungry. We ate this eel and, you know, for the next few days we were vomiting and we were suffering with diarrhea. So those anti-malarial pills that I was taking to prevent malaria, they were going in one way pretty much out the other. So yeah. I didn't have my full protection, but enough to enable me to survive five days and not 24 hours. Right. So it was all crazy how it worked out really, except that that was in the jungles up north. I'm weeks away from anywhere and I would have died. Um, but saying that, you know, I was only one month into the five month journey and I realized, you know, I, I think it comes in the mental training beforehand. A lot of people see how you physically train, but they always ask, how do you mentally prepare? And I think right. I mentally prepare for all of these endeavors by kind of overplaying absolutely every drastic scenario that can go wrong. And I maximize on that drastic scenario. You know, if there's going to be wolves, expect to be attacked. If there's going to be blizzards, expect them to be the biggest. Um, not because I want to face the biggest, but if I'm kind of thinking of worst case scenario, when I'm out there, if worst case was to happen, it doesn't come as a shock or a surprise. It comes as something I visualized, I anticipated. Um, so now I must just crack on with it and hopefully tackle on through it. And so with malaria, whilst I was devastated that I got it, I knew that I could get rid of it out of my system. Um, I knew that before starting this journey, it was always a possibility that I could catch malaria. And so all I now needed to do is to get in the right frame of mind again, stay disciplined. Um, I love the saying of, you know, no matter what you face in life, in life, you can't always be motivated, but you can be disciplined. So whilst I was right. motivated to continue at all at that point, I was disciplined, you know, tomorrow's another day. I would take it day by yeah. day. Um, and I just decided to push on and, it, you know, it, I got in my rhythm again, my flow. Um, and there just wasn't a day I ever felt like quitting. There was days that I hated, you yeah. know, in the jungle, especially as I had parts, I was like, I hate this. I don't want to be here bleeding from everywhere because of the leeches and spider bites and, you know, the bamboo sort of poking me and machete cuts and my hands were all blistered and stuff. But, um, I knew that the storm hasn't come to stay. It's come to pass. So I just need to crack on through the storm and get out of the jungle uh, or get wow. for the next day, you know. And so I think that's how I was able to just continue is, is the mindset that really helped. And we all have it. We're, you know, we're all so much, uh, as you found for yourself, you know, we're just so much more capable than we give ourselves credit, you know. Yeah, definitely. And on all of your treks together, what, what is you might have just answered one of these questions, but on all your treks, what was one of the best foods that you discovered that you were given from from a local uh, tribe or village or community, and what was one of the worst? Oh, okay, good one. Um, like, like what surprised you that was like actually really good, and you were just like, wow, this is actually really good, you know? And then, and then which one was which maybe may have been the ill, but which one was the one where you're just like, oh, and and you had to try to like look like you enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna go with. I'll say in China, I had so many amazing dishes, like different, you know, um, curries and whatnot. But I won't mention. I won't mention. Um, I'll go for a little bit of a wacky one. Um, so this wasn't my favorite, but this is one that was surprisingly nice, mm -hmm. and it was actually um, pig's liver. Oh wow! So they had this pig's liver, and you marinate it in vodka and or whiskey and chili. And you actually find the little hole and you blow, you blow the liver up. I'll be, I'll be posting it tonight actually on my Instagram. I've got that one set up. And so you blow it up, you cook it, and it's, it's all 
there's blood everywhere, you know, and it's yeah. like the vapors go back into your eyes, and I'm like, this can't taste nice. But after that, you cook it, and it tastes so damn good. And they mix it with rice or with noodles, and it's proper spicy. The texture's great, and I just wasn't expecting that, you know. Uh, and one of the one of the gruesome ones I've tried was maybe, um, maybe again in China, <laughs> maybe again in China, which was like a pasha wound. And it's kind of this little centipede almost thing, and it burrows yeah. in the Yangtze Riverbank, hides under rocks, and so you've got to search for it. Uh, and it's just this ugly-looking creature, you know, this horrible bit, big fat insect, and you have to take its head out, you know, pull its guts out, um, pop it in your mouth, and you, you can eat it raw. They cook it. It's a delicacy in uh, Pan Shu Hua, uh, but they do eat it raw as well. And I remember eating it, and one of the locals said to me, you know, make sure you don't swallow it until you've fully chewed it. Because if it's still alive, it's got so many legs, it'll get stuck on your throat and it'll start crawling back up your throat. Oh. You know, I was like, oh, my God. So I was chewing and chewing and chewing and made sure that it definitely was not wriggling no more. Um, and that was maybe one of the most dis- – there's been a lot of things that I've eaten that are pretty filthy. But um, maybe that ranks as the most <laughs> disgusting, you know. And for those of you that, that want to watch this stuff on YouTube, both of the things you just listed, you can actually see. I saw and I didn't know what you were doing when I saw you do it. It was on one of the trailers maybe. But I saw this big bloody thing and it had a hole in it. And you put your mouth like right to the hole. And then like I didn't know what you were doing, but it looked so gross at that point. Yeah. Funny that turned That's out to it. be one of the best tasting things. And then the, yeah. the, the worm. <laughs> I remember you you were talking uh, I don't know what video I saw but you were you had the worm in your mouth and you had eaten a, a cooked one but you'd also eat, this one was raw and uh, you yeah. you were describing the taste and you're like once you get past the yellow pus and the the moving <laughs> legs and the <laughs> it was so gross when you were describing and eating it I was like oh, oh my god sort of in your mouth you know and oh. you're like oh jeez I got to swallow that <laughs> so crazy grim grim <laughs> What about yourself? What's the worst you've eaten? Have you eaten like pretty, pretty disgusting? I don't. I'm not like. I'm not really like Anthony Bourdain. I don't really like uh, experiment too much with food. I'm. I'm really picky. Yeah. I don't. I don't get too crazy with it. I. The, the craziest thing I think you would think that I had was here in Thailand. They have like the Chinese festivals and stuff, and they have like the bugs. Yeah. And I wouldn't eat like yeah. the way you had like the grubs, the chewy ones, but I have had yes. like the, the the grasshoppers and stuff that were like cooked. And it was like what you Don't. said on the worms. It was just like basically just crispy. It's cooked with yeah, soy. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's cooked with soy. So it just tasted like uh, soy, crunchy. You couldn't tell it was a bug basically. But, yeah, right. you know, looking at it, that'd be the craziest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not I'm not that kind of <laughs> – I could never do a show where I could like travel and eat eat that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh yeah, man, it uh, it can get pretty disgusting, <laughs> to be fair. For you, I can imagine, because you don't have a. I mean, that's the thing about would scare me the most on your thing, aside from obviously just just something else happening, an accident or something, but just having to eat whatever you come across because you don't have a choice. It's not like you can refuse food once you finally get to a destination, and, and that's yeah. your destination of food and nourishment. Like you have to pretty much find something to eat there and eat it. And so, like that, that's what would scare me the most. I think. Yeah. Yeah, you sort of you you just eat what you what you're given pretty much. Yeah, yeah it's crazy. Um, and there's been some wacky dishes that have been brought to the table that I've been forced to eat due to lost calories. <laughs> 
All right, guys, I got to thank our sponsors really fast. And our first is Manscaped, the official trimmer of the UFC and now the official trimmer of the Real Quick with Mike Swick podcast and myself. The best below-the-waist men's grooming product on the market, Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. And now you can save 20% at manscaped.com, M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D, Dot com by entering code QUICK at checkout. You get 20% off and free shipping, and you support the podcast because if you use code QUICK, it lets them know that I sent you. So you support the podcast, you get the best groomer, everybody's happy. And as always, this podcast is brought to you by AKA Thailand, the world's premier luxury training resort in Phuket, Thailand. You can go to akathailand.com for all the information. Save 30% right now by going on and booking online any group class. If you have any questions, you can email info at akathailand.com. And if you're not familiar with AKA Thailand, here's our commercial. What's up, everybody? I am here in Thailand. This is the first time I've ever been here. Been dying to come here for years. Mike Swick, he's one of the big reasons he's been trying to pull me down here. What he built down here, AKA Thailand, is incredible. There's people here from all over the world. You can train mixed martial arts here, jujitsu. They have weightlifting, they have cardio, and obviously they have Muay Thai, boxing, everything. telling you guys, I know everybody wants to go to Thailand because Thailand's so cool, but you can't come to Thailand without coming to AKA Thailand. Come on. So for the first, the Mongolia trip, you funded that yourself. So you basically just did that yourself to kind of start your 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 adventure kind of uh, extremist kind of lifestyle, right? Yeah, I kind of just went out there. It was actually a production company that jumped on board on board last minute to give it the green light, um, and they just wanted the footage, you know, to try to to create something of it. Um, but a lot of that was from the back pocket. Yeah, um, selling my scuba diving equipment you know out in yeah. thailand my bcd my <laughs> regulators and you know i came straight back to the uk and i was just not spending at all as i mentioned the, no gym membership because i needed the last remaining funds to go towards the mongolia journey um and so yeah I, you know they've all been apart from china uh madagascar was a bit better they've all been you know ridiculously low budget really low budget like even the vietnam days i think we were spending 30 40 pence a day um we'd sleep in little hammock shops or in our little non-waterproof tent and just get by you know and so yeah it's uh it's been wild really the things that lack of budget will force you to do hey (laughs) so what was the difference when like so you got the mongolia you obviously accomplished that so that probably helped you out getting to madagascar and you got a little bit more things provided Mm. sponsors whatever else and then finally the yangtze how did how how did your as far as a, a business model and, and, and help for you to, to finance these things and, and publicity and stuff, how did that evolve from Mongolia to the Yangtze? Yeah, so that was – so after Mongolia, they, there was a jump, but not a really big jump. There was still a little bit of struggle with Madagascar because you're sort of still speaking to these sponsors. And even though you've got the proof of all of the previous adventures and, and now one record to your name – 
they still do look at, um, you know, the social media right, and how right. big your brand is, which is understandable. You know, they want to get your um, their product out to as many uh, viewers as possible. And so it's it was cool. It was kind of like I was all 100% sort of adventure. But since the Mongolia journey, and probably just before, I've become more business savvy. You know, it is 50% adventure and it is 50% uh, business, right. you know, with the bills to pay and whatnot. Yep. I'm seeing how I can continue to to live my passion. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm kind of turning my passion into a career, but I need to monetize that somehow is what I was thinking after Mongolia. So whilst it was tricky between Mongolia and Madagascar, <clears throat> I just stayed on the grind. I was just being rejected and rejected. And, you know, I get quite, quite dogged, you know, I'm just like, that's fine. You know, there's there's 7 billion out there, uh, 7 billion plus people, you know, there's yeah. lots of companies. Um, and I found that what, what my angle was. So before Mongolia, it was just adventure for adventure's sake. But whilst right. I've taken on those adventures, um, I, I very much found that the environmental aspect, you know, was pulling on my heart. I would see damaged jungles whilst yeah. I was, you know, hacking from Thailand to Myanmar. I would see the oceans went scuba diving and how ruined they were. Um, you know, Coke bottles floating as you're completely out at sea. And I thought there's a way that I can not just do it for adventure's sake because I didn't want it to be about one man and his mission. I wanted to look at the bigger picture and help out where I can, raise funds if possible, create awareness where I can as well. And so with Mongolia, for example, I partnered up with the Red Cross and helped raise funds and was um, raising awareness on climate change and the effects that that has on the nomadic way of life. So pretty right. the winters are so harsh now that the nomads are forced to give up their way of life, move to the capital city in order to find work. Um, and there's now a GUR, you know, like the tents that they live in, the yurts or the GURs, there's a GUR district lying around the capital city and it gets to like minus 30, minus 40 degrees Celsius in wow. the water and they burn what they can. So a lot of it's dirty coal and a lot of it's plastic. So there's this big smog that lies over the capital city. And there's a lot of newborns dying after a few days due to suffocation, um, the air pollution. And so the doctor just says, evacuate the city. That's all the advice he can give. And there's a lot of people that don't know about this. So I put a lot of focus on the Red Cross who helped with that and on raising awareness on the damage, you know, firsthand uh, what it has on the nomads. Um, so I continued that with Madagascar then and with the Yangtze journey. Um, and in turn, that also, you know, it, it made it the the main bonus, it wasn't necessarily about the record anymore. The record was almost um, for the for the building the name and bringing the media on board and then indirectly shining the light on, you know, the conservation, the real unsung heroes is what I call them. Um, and then brands, I found that brands naturally started to pick up more because they also wanted to associate their name with a good cause. And so that's how I kind of saw it. And then, of course, there was more story context with the, for the books and uh, it just started to build and build naturally and organically like that because I wasn't really looking at someone who had done this before in a career and be like, I want that sort of lifestyle or that sort of career. I just went out there and it was kind of my lack of budget but sense of adventure that drifted me onto this path and then right. realizing that maybe there's, maybe there's a way I can turn this into my career and actually earn money and then maybe there's a way that I can you know do good and inspire and look at the bigger picture and so it was amazing how many different angles, like even after the malaria that I got in, in Madagascar, I became ambassador for Malaria No More UK, uh, who's organized, um, who was supported by David Beckham and Sir Andy Murray. And I was able to speak um, 
in Parliament, addressed the UK government, and that was with Annie Lennox. And effectively, what we were trying to do is to share real life stories, not only of having it, but seeing the lives damaged uh, by malaria, by this disease. And we were trying to get a 20% increase into the global fund. And if successful, you know, as a, as a, as a group, which we were, it would, the budget would jump to 1.2 billion, which would wow. go to help saving 8 million cases and lives from malaria within the next five years. And that wow. me was just, you know, that makes the, the, the record seem tiny. If I could take a hit from malaria to just do that again, I probably would, you know. So it was, it was amazing seeing what these adventures bring that I never planned, but what I can, how I can turn a negative to a positive, yeah. if you like, and give back and do better. And so, yeah, that's the sort of, and then Mission Yangtze was um, on a bigger scale. And I've got, I had two world records to my name. So people were a little bit more interested now. The social media would be uh, growing, the talks, the presentations, the, the books would be selling. And so there was interest there. Yeah. But we're still going, we're still getting started. There's a lot to do. Yeah. But um, it's exciting, very exciting. With the, the Yangtze, you had the National Geographic come on board. And I want to see this, but I'm in Thailand. We don't get the channel, and, and I got I to gotta find a way to get it. But it's still going to be replayed over, right? Like, they're still going to replay this, this this documentary they did with you going across the Yangtze, which is a 4,000-mile trek. Yeah, it will be replayed, yeah. Uh, and so that's a two-part episode. Uh, it went live on, tw- on the 20th of October. Mm-hmm. Uh, second one, 27th of October. But it will now be on, you know, in the circulation system. It will then be going on to Disney+. Plus. Eventually, we're working to get it out in the UK and the US as well. Um, and that, again, opens up options to be collaborating with Nat Geo even yeah. more so in the future. So, yeah, that's that's exciting. What's well, cool, I would think they would definitely be able to help you find things to do in the future, like like new treks, new places to go, maybe propose ideas to you. They're like, hey, we got this crazy guy that's going <laughs> to that'll do anything. He'll track anywhere. <laughs> you would think a, a team yeah. like National Geographic that's covered the world as much as they have there'll be a good person to have on your side, you know, a good, a good, uh, I guess network or team or, or company or whatever you want to call them on your side to help you in the future for sure. So that was, that was definitely a big step, I think. Big time. Yeah, it is. It is exciting. And right now I have so many different ideas and it's a case of, um, I've got a, a much stronger team now as well. So it's a case of working closely with that team, with these different ideas, you know, pitching it to these, to these channels. Cause we want to hit the larger audience. Now we want to, we want to go global, you know, share these stories with as many people as possible. It's not just stories of adventure, but as I say, stories of the environment and culture and tradition. And, you know, we want to partner with the big channels now. So that's that's sort of where we're at. And yeah. fingers crossed, we um, just keep building from there. So exciting ideas that, you know, I can't wait to, to move forward with it if and when all of this madness yeah. clears, you know, and is, and is in the past where it belongs. Yeah, and obviously it's covered a lot in this documentary, which a lot of people are going to be able to see that haven't seen it already. But what what were some of the main differences of Mongolia, Madagascar, and then finally the Yangtze when you when you took on this four thousand mile, you know, river trek across China? What 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 were some of the big differences that you experienced for that one, and and how was that different aside from being way longer and almost a year, which I can't even imagine trekking for a year. That, that's so mind-blowing to me. But but what what were some of the main differences? Yeah, I would say the main difference, you know, the one that really stands out is how tough the logistics were to plan. I mean, you know, with Madagascar, it's not so hard to get a visa. With Mongolia, it's a little bit harder. 
Um, but again, if you know the right people, you can get the right visa and, you know, you, you get granted permission to trek through the country. With China, there was no quick route. You can't slide money under the table. There's, yeah. there's nothing like that. It's really by the books. And that seemed to be the hardest thing. This journey took over two years to plan. Uh, I had wow. to partner up with the the various different governments of each of the provinces that I'd be trekking through. I had to have the authorities on my side. Uh, I had to get permission from the Three Sources National Park, you know, and I think it was 14 different organizations at total too, 13 or 14 different stamps, uh, stamped documents and side documents that I'd have to carry in my rucksack because I was pulled in by the police, you know, five different times. I was so close to Tibet um, that I, you know, faced the threat of being deported. Um, it was just, especially, you know, the Yangtze River sort of, it's the fourth mile, 4,000 mile journey. Uh, but it's, it starts high up on the plateau, uh, in Tibet, well, in Qinghai, but it's called the Tibetan Qinghai Plateau. And it's over 5,100 meters. And because it's so close to Tibet, that's what brought the sensitivities. And because no Western really ever goes up there. And with it being the source of, you know, the mightiest river in Asia, it was just so sensitive and it just took such a long time of finding the right teams, you know, getting the right permits, the right governments on board, the right backup. Um, that That is inevitably what allowed me to make the expedition a success is the fact that when I was pulled in by the police, you know, often taken to the government buildings for questioning, uh, I had all of these documents, you know, and they would call through and get access. And, you know, the government would re- reply, you know, release Ash and take him back from where you picked him up from, which, yeah. which was obviously vital. Otherwise, they would have just got rid of me. Um, so I would say that was the main difference with China was the sensitivity and really working hard to get the right sort of authorities and government on board to allow me to do it in the first place. But yeah. in terms of physical, like expedition wise, it was the duration. It was the mix of, you know, minus 20. The, my biggest sort of fear factor with China were the bears. So I started two and a half months later than I should have. Yeah. I was now breaking into the winter season. Uh, I was facing minus 20, but, you know, it does drop to minus 40. I was high up in the mountains facing snow blizzards. There were wolves out there. The bears were now coming off the mountain peaks and they were looking for food before they go into torpor, right. which is kind of like hibernation. And we were walking food. We were walking calories for the bears. And I felt so vulnerable out there. You know, if a bear sees me, if it wants me, it will take me. You can't outrun a bear. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, they are like the ultimate predator, really, aren't they? they... Even if they get you, you know, you're not doing anything, are you? You can't do anything. Were you trained on anything? Like, were you trained on anything as far as, like, like stopping and don't move and, like, anything on like protecting yourself from these these wolves and bears before you went did you take any kind of like special classes or no classes but what i would do is try to learn as much as i could from the locals mm-hmm. and try to get their advice of what they do and a lot of them seem to have no answer to you know of what happens when a bear gets to you they all kind of said the same thing like you're screwed um but they did have an answer for keeping them at bay uh, and that was a case of making yourself loud. What they said is, you know, the, the majority of bear attacks come from when sort of they're working out up in the Tibetan plateau and they'll approach a bear over the top of a mountain or behind a tree. And, you know, it'll be a, it'll be a surprise and the bear will just freak out. It'll be that sort of shock and it will just attack you. So it will be in, in defense, really. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But in the hunting season, they do actually come down into villages. You know, they can smell all food and they will attack people as well. It was on CCTV news. And that was the issue. The locals kept showing me these horrific photos and videos and sending me this stuff over WeChat, which is kind of their, their, their yeah, version the of WhatsApp. WhatsApp. Of China. And it was, it was horrific, man. I had to say, you know, stop sending me this. It was bears like, yeah, I won't explain because it's quite, quite extreme. But um, I remember deleting these videos. <laughs> I remember picking up my pace and just trying to get off the mountains as quick as possible because mm. they were right. I shouldn't have been there in that season. Uh, and the expedition was almost cancelled. I had a lot of my team sort of say, you know, abort the, the trip, try again next year. But that's where experience set in. You know, I believed in the preparation. I believed in my experience. I believed I could get off the mountains before the uh, the true depth of winter. Um, and I, I carried on. And, look, and, and I'm glad I did because if I held back another year, then coronavirus would have arrived and that would have been Yangtze being written off, you know? Yeah, for so, sure. Uh, scary. <laughs> I would all find out. Well, from being from being underneath the uh, you know your trailer trying to go 100 meters at a time in Mongolia, to getting uh, you know obviously malaria in Madagascar and and you know a, a deadly strain of that, and then now a longer trek in, in the Yangtze, you know being 4,000 miles, be an entire year to get there. Um, what was the most dangerous? Like, wh- wh- where do you feel like you 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 risked the most? You were the closest to actually maybe possibly dying or, or being severely hurt. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Um, I I feel oof, it's close between. It's definitely too close between the Gobi Desert and malaria. But one that one that I often sort of shrug away is the actual military officer who, who had me at gunpoint. He was drunk, uh, and he had oh, the wow. strap. I think, it was an, I think it was an M16 or something, and he had the strap, and it kept slipping, and he was catching, you know, because he was sort of – I remember him growling at me as well, uh, and he was catching this gun by the trigger with the barrel pointing at me and my guide. Um, and so maybe that is a bit of a dark horse in terms of it only took, like, one pull of the trigger, yeah, and that's been done, yeah. which was scary. And, and especially the crocodile-infested rivers, sometimes we'd have to build a raft using natural resources. It took us like three, four hours to build. And we didn't see any crocs, but we were warned time and time again by the locals. And the rivers were all muddy, so you don't know what's lurking beneath. And we wouldn't want to you know, yeah. risk it. So we would just drift over by, by raft and hope that it didn't collapse halfway across. So there was that as well. But yeah, again, the bears... The wolves, the wolves, I didn't feel so much threatened by. Um, but there was this one funny time where, well, I say funny, more shocking, but we come across these Tibetan locals and they're trying to tell me and my videographer, Kyle, something. Um, you know, we didn't speak Tibetan. We didn't know what they were saying, but we filmed it all. We captured it all on footage and we didn't know what they were saying. We just kind of waved, said, you know, thank you, you know, bye. And we carried on walking. For the next two days, we were stalked by a pack of wolves we just hear them howling, and we could see them in the distance and they always maintained a close proximity uh, from ourselves. And we were like, this is a little bit dodgy. They normally cover a much further pace than we do, but they're on our tail uh, and keeping that distance too. Fast forward like five or six months, I think it was, my editing team in Beijing contacted me and said, you know, you had no idea what those guys were saying, but what they were trying to tell you is only yesterday a local lady was killed by a pack of wolves right down that valley where you wow. guys are going. So they were trying to advise us against it. And we were like, yeah, thank you. you know? oh, <laughs> and I'm kind of glad I didn't know. You know, that would have been pretty freaky. <laughs> That's crazy. 
mental. It was it was wild, but uh, you know we made it safe, well, and alive. And I think out of the people that joined me, because I had different guides and different film crew. I think within the four months, out of sixteen different people that joined me at different times, ten of those got were evacuated or had to abandon the expedition. Um, but you know, luckily, everyone made it back home safe, well to their families so that was the the main priority of course of all of these journeys yeah that's yeah that definitely and and, and two a two-part question here but going through all these journeys and all these crazy adventures and and close calls and stuff like that what do you think is the one thing the one factor that, that you have that that got you through this like what was the most important thing that you think you have that got you through these things and and was able to uh, cause that success for you to get get through these treks, and then uh, what was the biggest lesson that you think you took away from everything? Like all these experiences put together, meeting all these people, facing all these dangers, pushing yourself past all these limits. What what is the one thing you've taken away that you think you can use in the future for future treks? Nice, they're good ones. They're good ones. I'd say for the first one, it's hard to identify really what it really is. I would probably say it's it's a mix of many things. You know, I could say it's definitely the mindset and that sort of determination to just keep going. But then, you know, that mindset wouldn't be the same if it wasn't for the physical training and the preparation that helped not only train me physically, but also train me mentally. Um, and my body wouldn't be able to maybe cope with malaria the way it did or with lack of water for such a long time if it wasn't for the diet and the nutrition. You know, so I was playing close attention to detail on many things rather than focusing in on one thing. So if I focused in on the mindset, but yet my physical, my physical body doesn't have the capabilities to, you know, pursue and, and keep going, then that sort of scrambles it. If I focus so much on the physical side, but didn't have that mindset or, or you know, didn't have the, the nutrition or the health to allow my body to just keep pushing. And um, then that would put it to scrambles too. So I would say it was a, it was probably a bunch of different things being being mindset, being the nutrition, um, being the, you know, sort of physical training that I did. Uh, but yeah, with me saying like discipline, like, say again, like discipline, kind of, of just making all these things factor together. Yeah, for sure. And then you come into the later expedition, especially with Madagascar and Mission Yangtze, then experience has a huge part to right. play. You know, Michigan Yangtze was my first journey and I had my team on the phone saying, you know, stop now and try again another year. If that was my first trip, I would have listened to them, you know, because I would have been like, right there, right, I'm wrong. Uh, and maybe I should do that. But experience played a huge part. And I knew that I'd been in this scenario many times before on different journeys and I persevered. Right. So now I just must keep going again. So that's a great question. Um, and I would probably, my answer would be probably many different things that I focused on. Um, be in mind, body, nutrition, and just discipline. You know, maybe stubbornness as well. Yeah, it's got to be maybe a little bit of that. Maybe a little bit of luck. <laughs> maybe even a little bit. I don't like to say luck as I believe in the preparation, but, you know, maybe there there's a little bit of that, of that as well. Um, but, yeah, it's that whole doggedness of I don't want to come back short and have people tap me on the back and say, oh, you know, you tried your best. Yeah, I right. didn't want that. Yeah. I, I'm a man of my word. I set out to do something. No matter what the odds, I, odds are, I will try to try to achieve. Yeah. Um, and in regards to your to your second, um, your second question was, 
what did you take from take. these adventures oh. like combined like like what, what what do you think that you've learned the most and gained the most from all of this combined that you're going to take moving forward probably mental but uh just, just what what do you think is the biggest thing you've taken away from what you've accomplished and how you've accomplished it and what you've faced and what you've overcome to take you stronger or make you stronger and and let you go deeper and further in the future yeah that's a good one um I think if there's, if there's it, it's probably the realization, I, th I think I said this at the beginning, but it's probably the realization um, of knowing, and that's not just for myself, it's for the audience listening as well, but it's almost knowing that you're far more capable than you give yourself credit for. And so if I look back, for example, when I was 19, when I first cycled Vietnam, and you know, when I had these different ideas and when Mongolia popped to mind with all of the fear, with all of the doubts, you know, I, I, there was one point where I almost quit on Mongolia before I'd even got to the start line um, because I was listening to the naysayers, you know, and I was listening to the fact that I'm not experienced. And sometimes you need to listen to that. But other times you need to um, realize that, you know, everything seems impossible to begin with, but there's always a way to get mentally and physically ready for something. You know, if I didn't know how to overcome certain um, scenarios before I'm in Mongolia, learn, you know, research. And so I would I would say that, yeah, we are far more capable than we give ourselves credit for. Um, someone once asked me as well, like if I could go back and whisper to my 19 year old self a piece of advice, what would it be? And my answer was that I wouldn't. You know, it would be a case of you're about to do crazy stuff. You need all that experience. And yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. You know, you're about to do crazy stuff that will lead you to live the life that you're passionate about and that you really love. You will make mistakes, but I'm not going to interfere. Those mistakes are needed uh, to gain that experience. Um, and so I would I would choose not to give my 19-year-old self uh, advice. But then looking back now, it would be that, yeah, you, we are all so much more capable. Um, we just we listen to the dark thoughts a little bit too much um, when we shouldn't, you know. Is it scary looking forward to like – you know, the things you've done already are so dangerous. Is it scary looking forward to like bigger, you know, more ambitious uh, treks and, 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 and goals and, and what could possibly happen? Like, you know, like, like, like there was a guy that fought in the UFC at one point and he was a champion, a former champion. And, uh, his name was Evan Tanner, and, and he wasn't nothing like you or trained to do this all the time, but he would always go in the desert and kind of push himself and walk out and carry his canteen and whatever else, and he would kind of challenge the desert sort of one of those kind of guys, and then he walked out and never came back one time. Like he, he, he got disoriented and died. Um, and then, and then from that to me, I'm drawn to like danger. Like when I travel, like, like if I go to like Bali, I've, I've been in Brazil and the favelas up on the cliffs and like, I have to walk to the edge of the cliff to take the photo where like, everyone's <laughs> like, don't go that far. Don't do something like that. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm kind of edgy like that, but not like I would do the things that you do. So someone like me doing what you do, I feel like I would probably not make it. You know what I mean? So like how how scary is it that you might not know when to stop or when to cut back or when to, you know, kind of like, uh, not do something in the future to where you might make that mistake and, 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 and go too far. It seems scary. It seems like a scary, scary thing to me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. Um, I mean, you stuck in the middle of like the Yangtze 2000 miles in and one little thing can happen and that's it, you know, like it's over. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. 
And going back actually to your previous question as well, um, which resonates now with this one, is that's another thing that I would say I, I've learned through the experience is I don't see, like when I look at the Vietnam cycle and the Himalayas and sort of hacking through Myanmar when it wasn't even open, um, I look back, I, I think would I do that now? I, don't, I wouldn't do that now. Um, mm. So there's certain reckless things that I look back on like cycling Vietnam, I would take a pump and puncture a peck and I probably yeah. could afford one now and I couldn't then. But, you know, um, and so I found that my decision making is much better and I found myself not taking as much of a risk. And so I've literally sent people home um, off the Yangtze journey if I didn't believe or I wasn't quite confident that they could overcome the next obstacle. Yeah. I wouldn't trial them like, well, let's see if they do it. You know, I would stick with my gut. Um, it'd be hard to break it to them, but it would be, or sometimes I would give them that option. I would say like, you know, here's a landslide that we have to, it happened yesterday. Uh, and this actually happened to a UK a videographer that flew out to see me and he was with me for, he was supposed to be with me for two to three weeks. He ended up going home after six hours of, on day number one, because we wow. came, came across this massive landslide. And I said, look, these are the two options that we've got to get over this landslide, scout them both. Um, and I didn't know his full capability, so I relied on him to tell me whether he was comfortable and able to overcome this landslide. And I said, you know, there's no pride or ego out here, you know, because that stuff will get you killed. You need to be upfront and honest. If you don't think you've, you know, you're comfortable with taking on this landslide, you need to tell me. Um, and he did. He assessed both and hard decision for him to make too. And he, he said, no, I, I'm, you know, I'm shaking right now. And yeah. I really don't believe I'm, I'm going to make it over the, the landslide. So we sent him home. Um, difficult decision, but he's, he's back with his family. He's living. So if I was 21, 22, I don't like to think that I would prod and poke him to do it. Like, yeah, we've got it. Because there's a time where motivation's good. But I found that in this game, it's not about winning or losing. It's about living and dying. So I can't, if I motivated him to try that, that landslide and he was to fall to his death, that responsibility I would feel for the rest of my life. So right now, I feel that the attention to detail and especially the planning for these expeditions is meticulous. You know, the yeah. attention to what are the challenges that can happen. And how will I overcome them? If I'm a, if I'm a little bit in doubt about a certain challenge or obstacle, I'll hold back or I'll delay the trip by however long it takes until I feel okay. I, I feel I've got it now. Yeah. So I like to feel with maturity, um, I've gained this understanding of how far to push myself. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, I accident do happen though, but I feel now um, as these expeditions grow so does the, the team and so does the knowledge and so do the safety measures and so does the evacuation plan. Um, and so I'm always making sure that the safety is there first and foremost. So it's not as, still as dangerous as like anything can happen, especially like a landslide, you know, never know when that's going to come. But in terms of um, other dangers, I like to think that I scout them out and I'm fully prepared to overcome them. And if I'm not, I'll take a step back and not go to the edge on that certain occasion, right. if that makes sense. No, that makes that makes total sense. And like, you know, I think, I don't know the research that you do and all the preparation and everything, so I can't answer, you know, or I can't understand exactly what, what you go through, but I feel like you've definitely proven you have what it takes to do incredible things 
and, and you know, and, and do things that no one else has ever been able to do. And I'd love to see you get to that kind of, kind of that David Blaine stage where like he does crazy things too, but he puts yeah. so much emphasis on preparation and safety and stuff like that yeah. because he still yeah. has to do the task, but yeah. he's also prepared for these unexpectables that can come in and, 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 you know, make it a little bit less likely that for an accident or something just crazy to happen. Yeah. So, you know, I, that's a great example to use actually. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like that. Cause I never fear he's going to die, but I fear I'm going to watch him do something amazing that most people can't yeah. do. And so it makes me feel yeah. a little better. Like, I feel like you, from what I've seen is like, it's, I'd be scared the whole time watching you because like, it's so, you can't control the environments that you're in, you know, like, it's like, you are out there, especially on this like solo treks with like, no, you know, people with you. It's like so crazy, but, but you've at least done it and you've proven yourself now. And like, I think you're going to do some big things. Do you have anything coming up? Any, any other uh, big plans to like tackle? Yeah, I tell you what, it feels like I am just getting started. Um, Mission Yangtze was the warm up. <laughs> yeah, that's a big one. But you know, whether something's that big again, I don't know. Now it's time to to think a little bit smarter, a bit, a bit more business business savvy in terms of, you know, maybe we can do something just as crazy, just as extreme, and just as ambitious. But maybe it doesn't need to be 352 days, yeah. you know, because that's a heck of a long time. <laughs> uh, maybe it can be like an even wilder environment, but no. one or two months or a few weeks, you know. So there's there's lots. I would like to go back to um to sort of how I was like age 19, 20, 21. There was a, a big mix of extreme sports, uh, martial arts, yeah. surviving and cycling so now what I found, I, I kind of slipped into the hiking category, which sounds crazy for me to say right now. But, you know, walking I find really boring. <laughs> but it's it's not the walking that I do it for. It's the magic that happens in the duration, you know, during the process. It's the survival. It's the challenges. It's the crazy things I come across. It's the amazing people I, I get to see. Um, and so I think in the future I would like to open it up more. I like the whole idea of land, air, and sea. You know, so yeah. I've got the whole scuba diving, um, a powerboat, all of that sort of sea ticked off. Got the land in terms of desert, jungle, high altitude, um, something to do with, this, with the air now. You know, I've done the paramotoring and the paragliding. Be good to get the AFF license and then like sort of join these together and yeah. do a country sort of land, air and sea. Yeah. You know, various different environments as well, maybe tribal. You know, maybe, um, yeah, so that's my sort of thinking is really diversify it now. I think you could have a hell of a TV show for sure. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Yeah, I think you could. Let me, let me go back to Thailand really fast. So being that I live in Thailand, I have a gym and everything. So you fought in Thailand. So you trained in Thailand. You were here for two years, correct? Yeah, two years. And you yeah, trained and, and you got to a point where you fought. You actually fought. Like, was it like You had a few bar fights and then a, and then a stadium fight. Is that... Yeah, that's it. I had, I think it was about eight or nine club fights. And so that was just different clubs on the island yep. um, or from mainland. Sometimes they would sail over, you know, to Koh Tao and you'd have different club fights. Um, and I, but I managed to get a stadium fight in before I went for Mongolia. And the stadium fight, that one's on YouTube. That was a little bit like it was great. It was like a, a knockout in, in the first round, I think 12 seconds. But that was the one with the big audience where I'd like to like it to be a proper slugfest. Yeah, of course. You know, and just going, but it wasn't it wasn't quite that. Um, the club fights 
were definitely better, better fights. But oh man, I loved it. I loved it. The mindset, the discipline, the focus, the motivation. You know, I remember picking up little techniques from them as well. Um, you know, before each club fight, I'd be there at the end of my bed, you know, with a book or a log, just smashing my shins, trying to kill my nerve endings. Um, you know, and I, I remember when I first went to Thailand, I came with, because I was doing a lot of boxing here in Wales, so I came with this boxing stance. Yeah. And they just chopped my leg, you know, I was just like, oh, and I'd have to stay out of work then the next day because I couldn't climb up the scuba diving ladder because I couldn't bend my damn legs, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, geez, but, um, I loved it. I loved it. You know, it was, it was great. They would sometimes throw you out from underneath the shelter where you train and get you in the sun at 35 degrees Celsius and get you working on the parts of the sun beating down on you. And maybe that helped to prepare me for the Gobi Desert, you know? So I put that down to the Muay Thai training as well in Thailand, getting used to that, you know, to such sheer temperature. And I tried to storm. It's probably not good. It's definitely not good, but I tried to, make my body last the whole one hour or two hour session without water because I knew that that won't be an option when I'm in the Gobi Desert. So whilst mm. I was training Muay Thai, not for all of it because I didn't know about Mongolia for the first sort of good few months training Muay Thai. Um, but once I figured that out, I started to, you know, train specifically for the Gobi Desert in a way as well, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, oh, it was great though, man. Yeah. Yeah, but so what, what about yourself? So do you do mixed martial arts or is it Muay Thai? Or do you do a mix of everything? The gym does everything. Yeah, we actually go to the islands too. So we'll go to the islands and we'll spend a day on the beach doing pads and like, you know, beautiful beach behind us, the cliffs, everything. Uh-huh. Um, and, then, and then we do MMA, we do BJJ, strength and conditioning. We have a restaurant, you know, a huge Muay Thai area with like a mountain view with the huge jungle mountain uh when you come to phuket you got to hit me up man and 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 we'll go train i'll take you to the islands and we can go trekking a little bit and you can you can show me i just i just love to go trekking with you you know like i'm not going to be able to do keep up with you but you know it'll be an easy trek for you but i would enjoy doing it we can go to karabi you know they can do rock climbing all kinds of stuff there i've not been to karabi actually i've not been there i've heard about the uh, cliff well kind of cliff jumping and rock climbing isn't it you you climb it there's all kinds of stuff into the sea isn't it yeah and then they have like a real like the world's most scariest like swing it's like from a cliff and it just goes like out into like eternity it's crazy yeah they got some crazy stuff it's it's like a talent for me as well yes it's like a second home i think i've been there what five about eight nine times the past the past 10 years including the two years living out there crazy i love it i just absolutely love it and i need to top up that uh some of that Muay Thai as well. Yeah. You know, proper sport. It's been a while, so I like to get out there and train. I will uh, I will definitely hit you up. A lot of people you train with as well, right? A lot of big names. Do I see you training Habib? Yeah, yeah, Habib trains in America. So we're all the same team, but the, the, yeah. the headquarters is in San Jose, California. Yeah, got you. So that's got Habib and DC and uh, all the main guys. And then yeah. I opened up yeah. uh, my own gym in Thailand, which is still AKA, it's AKA Thailand. Um, yeah. and it's still the same family, the same team. Javier Mendez is the founder of AK is a co-owner of this gym as well. And this is like the yeah. international headquarters. So we've brought up a lot of big stars here and then, and we have like a, it's like a gym resort, you know, it's kind of like, it's a two acre compound. 
I say right. compound, but a landmass. And we got like the 5,000 square foot Muay Thai area. We have a, a huge 4,000 square foot indoor MMA, you know, training facility. We got a 3,000 yeah. square foot like uh, strength and conditioning weight room and then uh, aerodyne room on top, a restaurant, basketball court. And then that's just like a th two thirds developed. We got another development coming that's going to be kind of like the yeah. main aspect of the gym coming up soon. Um, and it's just like a campus, like a college campus of fighting. It's like you have everything. You have food. You have your training. You have your – we have yoga. We have strength and conditioning. It's like everything all in one location. And it's uh, – yeah, we get a lot of cool people, a lot of a lot of interesting clientele, influencers, celebrities. Um, yeah. So uh, many. I've seen a few people there actually because obviously I've had to go out through, through obviously the podcasting. Uh, Tyron Woodley, like yep. all the big names. Ty Tyron's all came through. He, he loves yeah. it, yeah. He's a good friend of mine. So they'll just come up and they'll just they'll just touch base every now and then and fly over, sharpen up or whatnot, and, and like, you know, how does how does that work? Are they here for like? Tyron loves training. He's still fighting. He's active, so he loves training yeah. at AK Thailand for himself. Um, you know, part of his fight camp. He's gonna start all his fight camps here with us. Um, but then we have, you know, we're not just for fighters. We're for everyone. So we have a lot of celebrities that come in too, like actors and actresses from Hollywood. We have Damien Hurst that comes through here sometimes. One of the most famous painters in the world from your your part of the the world. Uh, we we have so many different people that just come through here, and it, it's kind of like a. I built it to be kind of like the hard rock cafe of gems, like just a real cool it factor. It's very clean, very state of the art, but it's in the jungle and it captures Thailand. And we got the, the same training as the other gyms, as far as like the world champion Muay Thai trainers, uh, third degree black belt BJJ coach is one of the best in the world, you know, strength and conditioning, you know, so it's like, it's, yeah, it's everything, but it's, it's, it's at a higher level, higher class, but in a perfect location being that it's in Thailand, you know, and you can actually, you feel like like you're in Thailand. A lot of gyms in Thailand are in like you've probably seen there or seen them when you trained here. They're just like on the roads or yeah, you know in miscellaneous places. Yeah, yeah th this is like when you're training Muay Thai in our area, the whole yeah. view is this gigantic mountainscape with jungle. So it's like you know you're in Thailand. There's no mistaking that you're there. Yeah, it's yeah. really cool. Oh man, I, I will, I will, I'll be back, no doubt about it. So when I do return, I will, I will hit you up. We'll go trek in and I'll come and visit the place for sure. Yeah. For sure. So I'll, I'll, I'll help you out and, and, and get you hooked up with the Muay Thai, your training and all that. And then you have to take me trekking and uh, teach me a little bit of the your your thing because I'm, I'm curious. Man. I'm not near as tough as you are when it comes to that. <laughs> we'll, we'll head up and grab some coconuts. Yeah, well, yeah, we, yeah, we can climb some trees, man. Maybe we can do that. So you, you follow MMA as well, right? Yeah. I do. What do you think about some of these big stars now that's come up with like Habib, my teammate, obviously, but then obviously Conor McGregor and some of these guys that are like A-list celebrities and, and athletes now? Massive, isn't it? It's massive. It kind of felt, because I was following MMA before Conor McGregor's time, but it's almost McGregor brought in so many fans to the sport and they've just not left. Yeah. Whilst Conor's not really in fighting as much anymore, and I know he will be soon. Um it's brought so many people into the sport. They haven't yeah. left. And it's kind of they're almost replicating that and doing again. There's a lot of massive names. Uh, Habib, again, he's brought a different audience. He's like the biggest athlete in Russia right now, isn't he? He's yeah, probably the second most famous Russian in the world next to President Putin. It's wild. So there's a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting, interesting fights. And each weight category, like I, I enjoy watching um, Colby fight as well, you know? Yeah. I love that Usman versus Colby. And then obviously it was Colby and, Colby and Woodley before that. Oh no, it was after that, after wasn't that, it? Yep. What what happened with that, by the way? Was that did he break his rib? Was it Woodley's rib was broken? Yeah. Or? Yeah. 
it, it was a rib, was it? He's yeah. recovering from that, yeah. Yeah, man. But um, and then there's probably an Usman Colby too. That's, that's going to happen. happening. Absolutely. Habib, I saw the Ali in there. Title vacant for the lightweight. The lightweight title isn't vacant. So does that? You know, is he going for three? You know. Well, Habib retired, but you know, it, he hasn't he hasn't checked out yet. You know, so I mean, like he's, it, it, uh, you know. We don't know for sure, and I'm his teammate. We still, we still don't know. You know, like we, we don't know, but we do know that there is a chance that he might, he might fight again. He might go to 30 and 0. So I would say there's a, there's a, there's a chance. There's a good chance he might, he might not be retired. But either way, I mean, the guy's done it all. He's 29 and 0. He's lost two rounds in his entire life. He's literally yeah. the greatest fighter as far as our sport, MMA, that's ever lived for sure. Yeah. Oh, 100%. It's crazy. I hear a lot of people talking about his strength, like his grip strength. Like you sort of see everyone's face when they're actually grappling him and they're just sort of gassed, like, wow, no, I was not expecting this, you know? Yeah. I can't yeah, I can't imagine the whole – yeah, he's almost like he's got heavyweight strength for lightweight, you know? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's beyond crazy, and you're absolutely right. Yeah, he, he has – beyond crazy strength for a size and his positioning his wrestling it's it's a different style when he grabs you you just have no sense of control of your balance like he you know from the from the second that he grabs you and puts you in position that you're where you're going to go is completely up to him like there's there's nothing that you can possibly do or maneuver or or adjust that's going to change where you're going to go like he's he's 100 percent takes control of you it's 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 unbelievable, man. It really is. Like I just did, we just did a, a tribute video, like a compilation that we posted yesterday yeah. or two days ago. That's yeah. about I, about I that see, exact I thing. Yeah. I saw the one where, where DC was there as well, and he was saying like he shouldn't struggle against. Uh, he, well, he shouldn't feel a lightweight yeah. strength, but with the BB, he, he really feels the strength of it. And that's DC. You're, you're talking about a double champ who who is a heavyweight champion. And a light heavyweight yeah. champion, you know, one of the he's he's one of the pound for pound greatest fighters in the world himself, and he's exactly. he's talking about how strong a lightweight fighter is, you know. Yeah, yeah, I think John Jones is probably going to make a return now, isn't he? Yeah. As well, because that's all news about the whole, you know, when they were saying greatest of all time, and then sort of John Jones was saying, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna show them who's who's the greatest of all time. Yeah. Do, do you think he'll uh, is is he set to come back? Uh, Jones, I don't think he's signed for anything yet. No, he'll come back for sure. I don't know. I don't know. He don't even know. I don't think he knows what division or the UFC or anybody. I think he's going to possibly go to heavyweight maybe. Um, yeah. who knows? He'll definitely be it's, back. It's all so exciting right now, isn't it? And you know, whether Habib comes back and fights or not, uh, even if he doesn't fight, there's McGregor and Gagey, Dustin Poirier is an option and it's just... It's exciting right now. Interesting. Dustin signed to fight uh, Connor on January 23rd. So I think that's going to be the deciding factor whether Habib comes back or not. Because if if Connor does beat Dustin, who is a highly ranked fighter, legitimate top yeah. contender, if Connor can come yeah. back and beat him, that could make the greatest fight in UFC history with, with, with the second matchup between Connor and Habib. So that that's how yeah. that's how I think it could happen. Aside from that, I don't know if he's if there's anything interesting for him. But but if that happens, if Connor wins that fight, I I think it's gonna happen. Yeah, gee man, it's exciting. It's exciting. Let's uh, let's see, let's see. But um, but now it's kind of like boxing's taking a decline, hasn't it? Yeah, you know, I know bit. we're doing a lot of these sort of promotional fights and getting YouTubers to fight each other, but 
I don't know, man. It's all like UFC right now. What do you think about, um, you know, I know there are still a few fighters out there doing pretty good. Not not a lot of them. But what do you think about the Mike Tyson and uh, Roy Jones fight? The two two guys coming back from from the old school days. And and that fight's coming up next, uh, this month, the end of this month, actually. Yeah, yeah. What do you think yeah, about that? Yeah, exhibition fight, but this is, they're going to go all out. For sure. They've got so much pride, so much ego. There's not, not going to be anything soft about this. They are going to go all out. Um, it's an interesting, it'll be, it'll be interesting to see them actually fight, because I do know that, isn't it, um, Roy Jones was talking about if he fights and he likes the way he's fighting, he'll, he'll, he'll stay, he'll Maybe, keep fighting. Yeah. And I don't know if that's such a good option given the heavyweight division right now. Um, you know, I don't think he'd stand up to, obviously, the the, the young guns, the sort of hung, hungry dogs coming through at the minute. He would definitely in his prime. But, um, but yeah, let's see how this one will, will pan out. And it goes the other way as well. So there's a lot of people that don't know much about Roy Jones Jr. They know a lot about Mike Tyson, and they sort of write off Roy Jones. He was a heck of a fighter. Oh, one of the best. One of the greatest, again. Um, and so I think that's just going to be super. I don't know what the age difference is. Do you? Between the two of them, I think Tyson's older, but I think it's uh, I think Tyson's like uh, low fifties. I think he's like fifty two, fifty three. I think, and I think Roy Jones is a little bit less. I think they're both yeah. in their fifties or close close to fifty. I think it will be a great fight. I think it will be. Uh, but of fifty year olds, I, I've never seen two fifty year old fighters be as good and as strong and powerful and fast as those two are now. In my entire yeah. life, so I I don't yeah. think it's going to be a disappointment. You see highlight reels, don't you? And you're like, oh geez, okay, they still got quite a lot of power. Um, be interesting to see what their endurance is like. Don't know how many rounds they'll be going for, whether it be in an exhibition. I think they're going two minute rounds, and I'm not sh sure how many rounds. But you know, when you're talking about Mike Tyson and Roy Jones, that means they're going to just go out there and not care about cardio, not care about anything, and just just swing for the fences. So that's it's going to create like explosive fight. Yeah, I hope so. I hope it's not what you did. You see, uh, Roy Jones versus Calzaghe. No, I didn't. I don't think I saw that one. I think that was two. When was that? Two thousand and eight or two thousand and nine? I probably saw I it. Saw I just didn't know the name Calzaghe. I probably saw the highlights or something like that. Oh, Calzaghe. Yeah. Well, that they went head to head. It was sort of like <clears throat> I forgot what they named it, but they were past their prime. You know, they were both retired, and I think they came back to have this one fight. And this is going back over over a decade. <clears throat> um, and part of me seeing Roy Jones fight then, he definitely was not. Obviously, he's not going to be the same, and he wasn't back then. And part of me can't ignore seeing him fight Calzaghe and like really bleed, and then oh. sort of hunched up against the the ropes a lot of the time, and thinking, you know, he's ten years older now. Yeah, I might have to check that if out. Have it then? How was he? And that was a late fight for him against Calzaghe. If he didn't have it then, what's he going to be like now? Right. Uh, but then I do see him training on the pads, and he's looking sharp. He's looking fast. He's looking powerful. So. Yeah, it'd be interesting. Yeah, you never know. Like it's hard. It's hard. Sometimes you see people doing pad work, and it's deceiving. You know, people can look really good on pads and not so good in the fight, or vice versa. So yeah. it's it, you're right, man. I have to check out that fight because I, I don't remember seeing that. So I, I never really yeah. saw that much of a decline uh, with Roy Jones, like too much significantly. So if it was like that, then that might be a factor. And and maybe Mike yeah. Tyson's the same. I mean, he's he's older, so. You never know, you know. Yeah. But I know that power. I mean, th there's no mistaking the power of Tyson. When he hits that pad, that that is the power he will throw when he when he throws against Roy Jones. And I think if that power lands, it's going to be crazy. Yeah, he's still got that nasty uppercut, I'm sure. Let me ask you two questions really fast before we go. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the other the other 
side of the conversation. When you're on these treks, I was really curious, and no one's ever asked you that I heard. Um, what are you listening to? Do you listen to stuff like like what? You can't just not listen to music or something or or some kind of audio on your treks. I would assume. What what is it that that you is your favorite audio music or or or? Yeah, I listen to such a range of music from all over the world. I've even got um, Malagasy music on my playlist. Yeah, you know? <laughs> wow. I got reggaeton. I've got. Uh, there's probably some Thai in there, there's Chinese in there, but a lot of it, yeah, it, it's rap, it's hip-hop, it's sort of tropical, it's um, sort of old-school music as well. It's it's massively mixed, so diverse, wow. so diverse. Um, podcasts as well, I whack on podcasts, or sometimes um, audio, audio books. Um, and so I would try to do that, you know, on Mission Yangtze, especially being such a, a long walk. There were a lot of boring days on that journey as well. Um, so I would whack in the headphones and music is like one of my biggest motivators. It just lifts my spirit so much, yeah, you know? Sure. Yeah. And then my, my other question, my last question is when you train, I know I've seen, uh, videos of you training and stuff like that. Is there a specific, uh, like I do a lot of body weight stuff, a lot of, and I've seen you do a lot of pull-ups and stuff like that. I do a lot of push-ups, pull-ups, uh, you know, dips, things like that. Is there a specific regimen you stick to that helps you for this kind of thing as far as trekking and, and, and long term endurance? Yeah, um, I would say I focus a lot on my on my inner core. So I would say my top my top exercises are definitely you know pull ups, push ups, sit ups, and the tractor tire, which really helps. Um, and not just flipping the tractor tire and sort of jumping over it and sort of switching between the legs, working on the agility, but getting the sledgehammer on it as well and, and turning that inner core. Um, but I, I make it so diverse. I try to tick off like flexibility, balance, coordination, reaction time, doing lots of different exercises. Sometimes I'll be out there, especially before Mongolia, even if it was raining or snowing, I'd be out there for two to three hours uh, on one session. Yeah. Uh, you know, probably not so healthy really, uh, but it is what I needed because I knew that I'm going to be walking for a lot longer than two, three hours when in Mongolia. So I just tried to build up the body's durability is yeah. what i'd say really pushing to see how long it could go for endurance wise but under such immense pressure i would think you could do a hell of a series man and like and like really sell the hell out of that series because as far as the workout series because there's so many people that just have a good body and they're these instagram guys and like follow me and do my workout but it's like you you know, doing what you do, like, there's no doubt whatever you're doing is working, you know, like, because it's not just about walking. When you watch your tracks, you're pulling the trailer, you're, you know, grabbing stuff and going through and swinging machetes. It's like you, you have, you have to have an ultimate workout for ma master endurance for sure. Bear with me, man. Bear with me. I'm just being uh, kicked out. Just being kicked out. I'll run to the front. Oh, yeah. We're making the trek together. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There you go. The lights slightly changed, but I hope that's... No, it's perfect. Just been out. There's, a, there's an acupuncture treatment in that room. Oh, wow. Okay, okay, okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> but anyway, I was, I was just saying, I assume, I assume that whatever your workout is, man, you could really... Uh, you could really sell that thing because I mean, you know, you're not just a guy with a with a with good shape and saying, "Hey, look like me and do this." Like you're out there actually proving that whatever it is you're doing works. I mean, you've survived some crazy, crazy, yeah. crazy treks. Yeah, man, it's that sort of practical strength that I'm always to always pushing and working on. Yeah, you know, like I've got the, the whole setup was so effective before Mongolia in my in the garden that I still 
train like that. Yeah. You know, now that I obviously I've got that option, option of course, to join the gym and whatnot, it was just so effective and efficient in my back garden that I continue. Yeah. I train like that for Madagascar. I train like that with walking the Yangtze, um, working on the full functional sort of practical components of everyday life, but then expanding on it, getting the weighted vest to reenact that of the rucksack or getting on the altitude mask to reenact that of the altitude. And whether that works with the altitude mask or not, what it does do is it makes me feel super uncomfortable. And I'm always a big believer that the more uncomfortable you make yourself, the more comfortable you'll become. Right. So I just put so much stress on the body before the expedition that when I'm on the expedition, you know, I'm just I'm just sailing through it. Yeah. I'm never sailing through it, but I like to think, you know, it's it's a lot easier because of the pre-training beforehand. Yeah. That's awesome, man. That's so cool. And man, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I could I could talk to you for hours and I, I know you don't have the time and I appreciate the time that you've given me, man. It's been, you know, no, I, I know I probably pushed you here. But uh, yeah, I could talk to you for hours, man. It's it's so interesting what you do, what you've done, what you've accomplished. I wish you all the best and, and all your successes. Appreciate I'm going to follow you forever now and and everything that you do. And and I'm I'm hopefully going to see you here. Likewise, likewise, and I'll see you when I'm over there. Yeah, hopefully I'm going to see you here and as soon, and you can come over to Thailand and, and we can meet up and and do both training yeah. and trekking. I think that'd be amazing. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Look forward to that. Appreciate your time. Big thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks for being on the show, Ash. We'll do it again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks, bud. All right, Ash Dykes. What a great podcast. Um, so fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I know I tend to stick to MMA podcasts with MMA fighters, but I, I, you know, I'm not limited. I will talk to anybody that I find interesting that I think will be an interesting conversation, and he is definitely one of those guys. And uh, we connected, and I invited him on the show, and I am just so fascinated with his life and what he's done. These kind of people are just lifers. I call them lifers, guys that go out there and just love to live and, and, and explore and do things. And, and I've always been an explorer by heart growing up in Texas and, you know, not to his level, not, not trying to take on the world by myself, trekking, you know, entire countries. But, um, you know, I definitely have been interested in, uh, and, and the outdoors and, and traveling a lot. And uh, this was a great podcast. It could have went on for hours. And, and I hopefully I didn't uh, I didn't miss anything. And I, and I got the majority of the important stuff out because it's, it's super fascinating. And I'm, and I'm super intrigued with what he's going to do next. And uh, definitely follow him. Go to his website. Go to his social media. Um, he's all over the place. We're going to be linking him up here with, with the promotion of the podcast and all of his links. And uh, check below in the, the description of the YouTube, um, and we'll have all of his links up there as well where you can follow all, all what he's doing. I uh, hope you took a lot from the podcast. If you have any questions, uh, please leave them on YouTube. We definitely like the comments and the feedback, and uh, you know we'll get back to you. We'll answer. We'll reply. We'll take the, the feedback that you give us. We appreciate it. We have some really good guests coming up. Uh, I know it's been a slow start to the month, but we have a powerhouse last half of the month. Um, and we are lining them up and we're going to be knocking them out of the park starting tonight and, and on, I got another one tomorrow and it's just going to continue on from there. So stay tuned, subscribe, hit the notification button and, uh, we'll see you next time.